This week on The Rail Splitter, we're going to talk a little bit about the controversy around the proposed HBO show Confederate, and we're going to break down the political quagmire surrounding Fort Sumter. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition. To each other. And party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast. I am one of the co hosts, Jeremy. Along with me is co host Nick. Hello, everybody. And today we have for you a Civil War themed episode. So, of course, for our Civil War episodes, we've brought in our third rail splitter. You know her as the blogger Civil War fangirl. We know her as Mary. Mary, how are ya? I'm great. Thanks, guys, and thank you for having me on the show again. We are happy to welcome you back, mm-hmm. and we're excited to talk some Fort Sumter today. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the controversy around the proposed HBO show Confederate. That's kind of a loosely connected to Abraham Lincoln news story that's popped up. Um, basically what we're talking about, if you're not familiar, the showrunners, and Nick just looked up the term showrunner because we had a little disagreement about if that was a proper term. It is, it is. They're like the executive (laughs) producer of Hollywood TV shows. So the producers, whatever you want to call them, the showrunners of Game of Thrones, which I will admit I am a fan, uh, proposed... Yeah, you watched the last episode? Yeah. It wasn't as good as the one before. No, there's a lot of plot. I haven't seen the last episode yet. I've only seen the first episode of the season. All right, right, we'll stop talking then. It's going to be awesome. Uh, (laughs) But the showrunners for Game of Thrones proposed an alternative history that proposed what would the United States look like if the Confederacy had won. And this sparked quite a lot of controversy. And I've done what I can to read uh, arguments on both sides. this arguably is an issue, is an issue that may have multiple sides, unlike other issues that we've come across uh, lately. Uh, but anyway, the two side, the two main arguments are: um, on one side, you cannot or you should not criticize art that does not yet exist. In other words, this isn't even a thing. It's an it's just a like a two sentence HBO saying, "Here's what these guys are going to do," or "Here's what our you know the show is going to look like," and then the arguments against it are deep and pretty nuanced and academic and uh, philosophical about um, what it means to propose the idea that that war had a very distinct and significant and well-defined ending and that there was a clear victor and a clear loser and that that idea may undermine where we're at where we're at as uh, the United States and you know by extension the world with regard to race so those are the two big arguments um on each side, I can understand the argument about it doesn't even exist yet. It's not a thing. You don't even know what it's going to look like. While at the same time, the idea that uh, the the South, it, it, as their uh, proposal said, won, or it, you know, it's alternative. So like the idea is that they lost, and then what if they had won? Is a concept that is very sensitive. So what what do y'all think? I, like, why don't they just come out and give us a little reassurance about it? You know, um, why if they're so set on doing it and they think it's it's a fair thing that it's not um, going to be, you know, um, controversial or um, it's not going to preach, you know, the message of hate, then, you know, come out. You got nothing to lose by giving us a little bit of what it's going to be about. Maybe, you know, change the name 
um, you know, it's something you could do too. Um, I, you know, if they're so dead and set in having it, why not give us a little bit more to have a little bit more faith that they'll do it right and that it'll be fair and balanced? That, that, that's kind of my argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, Nick, about that. And like some of the arguments I read were that you know, they're basing people who don't want the show to or they think it's bad that they're saying like these guys were the ones that created Game of Thrones and look at the lack of race in that show like it's mainly i read one one thing that said it's mainly caucasian actors that are in it and they're afraid that it's going to be overtaken by that or that they're basing their opinion just on how game of thrones is and what they think of it um i think to me the show sounds slightly intriguing but yeah i want to know a little bit more about it too like it just seems kind of like they just announced it and then everybody jumps all over them for it um, but I do see both sides to it as well. Yeah, and I think that um, I'm sure I, I, it's hard to, you know, I don't want to guess what they planned on doing or what they mm-hmm. they intend to do. Um, but I can't imagine that it's not going to be critical of a white power, white nationalist kind of struggle. You know, I can't imagine that, that that's going to be absent. You know, that's probably going to be the narrative. Um, I think the main crux of the argument against it is, you can't turn your back or ignore the fact that the seeds sown from our legacy with slavery are still in the ground and they're still mm-hmm. flourishing in many ways. And to say that like, oh, you know, that that those forces lost, these forces won, and what what happens if it was different? When I think they they a lot of people, and I think myself included, really think that that's that would be a bad thing if we if people accept that yeah, the civil war is over we don't have scars and we're still not feeling the damage from our legacy of slavery. Cause clearly this last weekend, um, in, um, Charlottesville really is showing where we're at as a country with regard to, to the civil war and its legacy. Yeah. Isn't there the, the Amazon series like man in a high castle? That's an extremely yeah. similar premise. That's it's... That's as if the Nazis had won. Yep. Is that, I, I'm just curious, I just, just popped my, like, in Germany, is that viewed? I wonder how that was approached in Germany, if that's even out there, available to the German population, you know? Yeah, I was wondering that myself, too, like, if it, because I read one article saying, well, this is just, like, the man in High Castle, and it was somebody that was, you know, wanting to see the show Confederate, and they said, well, it's no different than the man in High Castle. Right. Yeah. And I've and I've watched the Man in the High Castle. Hitler's literally a character in that show. Like he's really? yeah, he's because it takes I've place. I've not seen any episodes. Wow. Um, some of the differences are that Man in the High Castle takes place in like the fifties, so it, it would be like just after. Um, yeah. And maybe maybe like the early sixties, um, and it takes place almost exclusively in the United States. So it's very much a, an alternate universe. Like it's you know. Um, which I, I'm guessing Confederate probably would have been as well. Uh, but, um, yeah, like you see there's like a small little plot line where they try to assassinate Hitler and he's an old man and they're, you know, worried about succession and those kinds of things. But So the fact uh, that it's removed from, like, it's America taking on this kind of, you know, this hate group that originated in Germany, does that make it better? Like if Confederate was being done in a different country, would maybe, that make I, it yeah, right? I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's... The, in the Man in the High Castle, the Nazis are clearly the bad guys. Mm-hmm. They're clearly the villains. Okay. You know, like, it's about 
a, I mean, essentially you're rooting for this underground um, resistance that's, you know, kind of just like a network of whispers and, you know, uh, secret passageways and whatever else. And they're trying to like organize this resistance. And the man in the high castle is kind of a mythic figure who may have, there's some science fiction elements to it, may have a little bit of like since seen to the future and things. And um, so it, it is a sci-fi kind of thing too. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a similar concept. And again, um, I, I feel like I didn't hear a lot about that show and then it kind of came out and you could kind of judge it for what it was. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's also based on a novel. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's based on a novel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that that might having some source material that people could reference. Mm -hmm. Um, now that said the source material, there is some, there's plenty of historic fiction that, talks about the lost cause of the south and if they had actually won what it would be like yeah. newt gingrich wrote yeah. a book about it go yeah. figure yeah. <laughs> so um it, it definitely exists out there and i think that that has um been used by hate groups differently I, I think that part of the issue part of the reason that there's a difference between germany and here is that the, it's, it's illegal to have a swastika on display mm-hmm. in germany now mm-hmm. say what you want first amendment stuff that you know that I'm not saying that's right or wrong. However, um, the legacy of Nazi Germany is much less prominent. Not to say that it's not. Uh, certainly in the East, it's very, very strong. Um, but, you know, there are museums about Hitler. There's museums about the Holocaust. There are not monuments to Hitler. There are not monuments. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's it's not as if, and, and that's this whole concept of, erasing history like you're not erasing history history that history the history of the confederacy and confederate officers and people is important it needs to be remembered and documented accurately and properly perhaps in a museum as opposed to a a monument you know there's we don't learn and we we know from the show that we're i'm a fan of monuments but we don't really learn from them in the same way as we would from the the history in these monuments are so out of whack anyway i mean the majority of them the overwhelming majority of them were built well after the civil war like jim crow law era so that's when they were built and hell i was just trying to quote robert e lee didn't even want statues put up right robert e lee didn't didn't want he didn't want medals given he didn't want like that it would be very much against what he wanted yeah you know so it's and his the guy's name robert e lee the fifth today came out or when we're recording this came out and said that take it down it's you know like he wouldn't want it up anyway we don't you know that's not i mean they were a little bit more defensive of their you know their ancestor um claiming that he was you know really trying to bring the union back together after the war had ended which um perhaps but yeah it's uh i think they were it was interesting that someone you know his great great grandson who shares his name came out and said that so we'll see what happens we'll see if uh you know, looking at, at Nick's epic Civil War beard, maybe they'll want to cast him as some sort of. <laughs> I only play Union soldiers. <laughs> only Union soldiers. This this beard does not does not secede. Is that Correct. what you're saying? Yeah, hundred percent. It's getting trimmed tomorrow night. Oh, so. are you really doing that? You're trimming it? Yeah, yeah, I got it, kind of. So Kira putting the smack down on me. Yeah, his significant other is Aww. wants to see his face apparently. Was well, uh, I like going? Let's get trimmed. Okay, just I mean, just a little. It's part of my brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, and I do need to mention, uh, Nick and I work in a school, and today was our first day with students. So, 
Um, if any of my comments come across as like a ball of stress and sleep deprivation, <laughs> that's why, uh, because I had to throw together a teacher, a couple teacher trainings and make sure the kids had classes. Hey, to I don't know how to deal with the kids all day. <laughs> you, you just walk the halls. That's all I saw <laughs> yes. you do. Yeah. Is that all, all the principal zoo is walk the halls? Yeah. I haven't seen my kids in three days. Uh, you know, let's not, I'm not complaining. It's not about me. So uh, anyway, I'm just apologizing for stupid things I say preemptively. <laughs> We're going to talk about... It did take us like three different attempts to get this show rolling. Yeah, like I couldn't even say... Yeah, we did. All because of you. We record almost every episode live, too. Like, we're so good about that, and not today. But it's okay. It's We're we're getting there. Um, So anyway, we are going to talk about uh, Fort Sumter, um, the first battle of the Civil War. And what we want to talk about is a lot more focus on Abraham Lincoln, because this is certainly... um, an extremely, I believe, important point in his presidency and how he emerged as a president. So, Fort Sumter. Who wants to, who wants to give us a brief brief synopsis of what we're looking at with Fort Sumter? Lincoln gets elected. South gets pissed. They leave. They try to take the forts. <laughs> that and was then, brief. And then Robert That's Anderson's good. put in charge. You know, he's from you know this guy's from Kentucky. He's married to Southern Belle. Bam, you know what? He's going to hand it over to us. And then they're like, oh, damn, no, he ain't. So Robert Anderson, you know, uh, he's a Black Hawk War along with Lincoln there. That's right mm-hmm. here, by the way. Lincoln was about maybe 20 miles-ish from where we're sitting right now when he was doing his service in the Black Hawk War. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anderson fought down in Florida, and he was in the Mexican-American War, too. So um, And there's some writing out there, too. I was listening to, uh, I don't know what it was. But there was some, they were using a quote, kind of talk about how he kind of, you know, in Mexican-American War, he's kind of writing back about kind of his, almost like an anti-war letter back home, and kind of the destruction that's caused um, through war. Um, he was friends with Jefferson Davis, so I really think that they thought Anderson was going to hand stuff over, um, because this is all taking place when Buchanan's in office, too, uh, when it really gets started. And then another quick interesting note I saw is Bure- uh, Beauregard, I totally butchered that. Uh, was his TA? It's French. Yeah. <laughs> was like his teacher assistant. Really? Back, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. So um, yeah. So there, there we go. We're all caught up to speed, right? PGT. Pierre Gustave. Toutant. Toutant. There you go. <laughs> it was just a you know, I don't want to make a French and Canadian joke. Is that would is that off putting to make a? No, not no. at all. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, and I think one thing about Fort Sumter that kind of jumps out at me is like early, not even early, but like for most of my scholarship into the Civil War, it was like, okay, first battle, lots of cannon shells, nobody dies, and here we go, we're at war, you know, and there wasn't a whole lot of, in, until I really started reading about Lincoln, because I was interested in the Civil War before I was really interested in Lincoln, I read, started reading biographies of Lincoln and realized like, holy cow, this was like, very sophisticated political chess match that he had to negotiate both with the Confederacy, the military, his cabinet, public opinion, you know, like in, in, I think that gets lost when you think about what he was confronted with literally days after being inaugurated. It's the only time in history that he, I mean, you have States that have seceded from the union and you've got to figure out, and this is where he has to decide, how are we going to deal with this? And there were still a great many people who thought that there was not going to be a war. I think it was the day after he finds out that Anderson's pretty much run out of food. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, people, yeah, so. it was like he walks in the day after and talk about worst first week on the job. Like <laughs> you walk in the day after you've been igno- inaugurated president and you have this note from this guy down south saying like, I have six weeks of supplies left and I need troops as well. Like, as imagine Buchanan how just, he must have felt. Buchanan just sitting on his hands too for causing this all. Yeah. Like the more Buchanan just sat there to nothing, I kind of feel like it, it strengthened the Confederacy because it gave them time. Um, to, you know, get the, because South Carolina didn't have the militia to take it, but then as time goes on, they're allowed to build up, build up for that. So damn Buchanan, almost hate him more than Fillmore. <laughs> I don't hate either <laughs> of them, but yeah, I almost mean, dislike him more than Fillmore. But Buchanan did nothing, which is, you know, par for the course for him. Um, yeah. So, and I think that the, the, the one thing I think also that jumps out at me and that I really think is important dealing with Buchanan doing nothing Lincoln's cabinet almost starts kind of fighting amongst themselves, trying to see who's going to get the position that's going to control the presidency. Because every president, arguably since Jackson, maybe a couple here and there, really were not very powerful. They really didn't do a whole lot. And there was always someone in the cabinet that was kind of holding the strings. And like you can kind of see these, the cabinet members jockeying for position, like who's going to be the influential cabinet member? Who's going to be the one that's really the policymaker? And I think Seward... You know, it's hard to guess how he felt and thought, but I would guess he, he thought it was going to be him. Yeah, he. I think he did because he ends up sending Lincoln this letter on April 1st, and he titled it, Some Thoughts for the President's Consideration. And one of them was that he proposed that Sumter be evacuated, then Fort Pickens down in Florida be reinforced. And Lincoln came back and said that he had pointed out that the policy that was in his first inaugural was to hold and occupy and possess all the forts that lay within like that were federal and therefore he couldn't evacuate Sumter. Well, so the former sewer basically was telling people, Hey, it's going to be evacuated because there were some Confederate diplomats in the area and he kind of met with them or he had a dialogue with them. I don't know if he directly. Yeah. 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 I think he had some kind of dialogue with them. And And he basically saying, Hey, you know, we're going to evacuate it. And then, well, you know, big old Abe said, uh-uh. Right, yeah, and that, yeah. you know, to be a fly on the wall in that conversation, but, like, I, you know, you can kind of almost picture, I think specifically Seward and Gideon Wells kind of going back and forth, like, Seward taking a stance, like, I'm going to be the driver of policy. Wells being like, this is a fort out in the sea, and I'm the Secretary of the Navy, so I think, you know, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think maybe this might be my call. And meanwhile, I think Lincoln's just kind of looking at him like, you know, y'all, y'all know who the chief executive, commander in chief is here, right? Like, I'm asking for some input, but you know, and I think that the way that he navigated the uh, situation solidified to at least his cabinet, if not everyone else, this is not going to be a presidency like Buchanan. This is not going to be, or Pierce, or. Polk or, you know, to a lesser degree Polk, but, you know, like all the other early 19th century presidents who didn't do a whole heck of a lot of anything. They weren't, the executive branch just wasn't very powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, I would argue between Jackson and Lincoln. Um, And they were all one-termers. So, you know, I think that lets, that, that indicates a lot about it. A lot of them sitting presidents, not a lot of them, some of them sitting presidents didn't even get their party's nomination. Would you give Fillmore power? Come on. True. Fillmore is was was one of those indeed. Um well I kinda think for Sumter's a turning point as far as how the cabinet and Lincoln interact. 
I mean, he kind of sets them all straight there that, hey, I'm the guy who's running the show. I'm definitely going to come to you guys for input. You, you will have a role to play, but it's going to be me making the final decisions. Right. And I think that, yeah, and I don't want to lose that point. I agree. He what he did trust Seward, and he did go to him for his opinion a lot. And I think that this is a very nice preview, in a way, to the Emancipation Proclamation because it was very similar where huge mm-hmm. crossroads or, you know, really and i keep using the word quagmire because i like that word but um really just a very difficult situation um and similarly to emancipation he sought the input of the cabinet the cabinet was largely divided or torn or had a lot of different angles it was going with and he ultimately made the decision maybe for some of the listeners who maybe aren't quite um as knowledgeable for something maybe we should break down kind of what the options were for lincoln mm, yeah absolutely that he's <laughs> facing so i don't know i mean anybody want to do that I can, but you can go ahead too. Well, let's. I'll, the three options are reinforcing the garrison, which means sending troops and equipment into the fort, simply resupplying it, which would be probably mostly just provisions, like saying we can't, you know, we don't want to starve these people out, so we're going to just resupply it or surrender it. So, yeah. looking first at, I think the two most obvious were reinforcing and surrendering because those are your two military options, really, mm-hmm. right? So yep. are we going to fight for this fort? And then it turns into a, a naval battle simply to get the troops to the fort, and then how do you then defend it? And defending forts, especially one that's out in the middle of the sea, is from a military standpoint – you know, you basically just how long are you going to take the barrage because you can't really counterattack or anything like that either. Um, and another piece too, it's not hugely strategically important. No, I, I agree with all that. I mean, yeah, I think when you reinforce it, if you're going to reinforce um, and resupply, I mean, you're basically you're, you're talking about firing a shot. So bam, you go in there. Now, whoever fires a shot, you give the other side the ability to say they're their aggressor. We're doing right. this in defense. Right. And then, a, yeah, no. Go ahead. It's a very significant Han Solo moment. Like, it's, or the opposite of the Han Solo. Han Solo, who shot first? Han or Greedo? Han shot first. Of course he did. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I got new Star Wars shoes in the mail today. Han Solo and Chewbacca. Oh, nice. Oh, so are those the Sperry? Just off topic, are those the Sperry's ones? Because uh, Jeremy Jeremy has the Sperry's. He's got uh, C-3PO and R2-D2. Ah, uh, they are that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he just get them like the other day? I actually picked them up when I was in Ohio before they were supposed to be on sale. Oh. Um, one store had them on sale, so I bought them for them. Is this like a retail world connection that you get going on? <laughs> yes. Oh, by the way, this is a different Jeremy, not me. Uh, yeah. Although I would totally wear Star Wars shoes. Um, uh, the so, But it like, okay, so there's the Star Wars debate. Who shot first, Han or Greedo, which is super fun to have. And obviously everybody who's right knows Han shot first. Um much, much more significant when we're talking about Fort Sumter because it is extremely important, especially with regard to Abraham Lincoln, who shoots first. Because if the United States shoots first against another, in their, in Lincoln's view and their view, American citizen, that could be very problematic. Well, and I think when you think about it, if the South just wants to leave, they're almost in kind of position to force the North just for them to stay. If they just hunker down and do that, the North eventually, wouldn't they have had to fire the first shot? 
if we take Fort Sumter out of the equation? I don't know because they're holding the fort, right? Mm. Or you just let that be. Like, why don't you just let them hold the fort if you're South Carolina? Because yeah, because they were they were not allowing. Like they they had essentially positioned people so that it was a siege. Like you don't have to fire a shot. Like yeah. you see the you see the enemy creating ranks around your fort. Even though shots aren't fired, like okay, we can't leave, <laughs> and we probably can't get stuff in. So essentially, now it becomes: do do we have to blast our way through to allow supplies through, or even to maybe even allow us to surrender, or do we just sit and wait? And I think that's that's what that's where they were when Lincoln uh, took office. Mary, in in our show notes, you brought up some really good points about the first inaugural. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that maybe put pressure on Lincoln, or at least maybe? directly influence what he was able to yeah. do? Sure. So in there was two principles that Lincoln laid out in his first inaugural that really applied to Fort Sumter. And the first is that he said that he wanted to avoid bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none unless it be forced upon the national authority. Therefore, they're going to have to fire first at us before we fire back. So he's not, I think he's saying not wanting to start anything. But then he said that he wanted to hold, occupy, and possess the property in places belonging to the government, meaning he can't evacuate Fort Sumter. And two, I think by that point, Fort Sumter had become a kind of a symbol of northern morale, almost. Like, if we lose Fort Sumter, then this the morale in the north is going to drop. Well, I think it definitely becomes a symbol because there's also a fort down in Florida that's in the same situation. <laughs> but, like, we'd never... Like most people forget about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I'll Pickens. be honest, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, so um, it was off the, I think it's like Pickens or Pickens. Yeah, Fort, it was Fort Pickens. Okay. So, and then same thing's going on down there. I think it was a little bit easier to defend that and keep the Confederates out of there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and to resupply it. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of a second thing because Fort Sumter became such the symbol of the conflict and everything. So I think that's a very good point. And I think, too, I was reading somewhere, too, by that point, like, Major Robert Anderson had become a sort of hero in the North mm -hmm. because he had been at Sumter since um, late December. And, you know, we're going into April now, and he's still there. So he had become a hero in the North already. Yeah, right. I think that's another thing that gets lost is the time span of how long this was going mm -hmm. on. I mean, we're talking a good four months um, of this happening. Yeah, right, because the inauguration it was not in January like it is now. It was in March. Um, so... Yeah, and that's and I and I think that that's another uh, interesting kind of piece when you compare historic eras. There, there wasn't exactly an office of the president-elect like we have now, uh, or a transition plan, or a director of the transition. You know, it was handling a great many political appointments and preparing uh, your family to move across the country, which took days. You know, and and things like that. There was not a significant. Um, transition between presidents so he gives this speech the the first inaugural i mean and he probably knew a little bit um but most historians agree that it was fairly shocking to lincoln when he found out just how immediate uh the the danger or the the immediacy of his decision had to be like they were going to starve to death after six weeks which is mm -hmm. you know a decent amount of time but still he had to make that decision fairly quickly yeah um and wrestle with is he driving the country into civil war? <laughs> is he, you know, and what that means? And, um, you know, and I think that that, I think that gets lost a lot when you talk about Fort Sumter. I think a lot of it is, 
that's just happened. You know, the, the war was going to be fought, and they were going to have to fight their way out if they were going to secede, and just just happened to be where it started, and that's not really the case. Yeah, no, I agree. I, so then we have, well, so we're talking about reinforcing and resupplying it. So then you got surrendering it. I mean, and Lincoln's idea, I don't even think that was an option. No, I don't think it was an option to him at all, because by that point, like he, his first inaugural, basically, he couldn't do that. And I think he knew he couldn't do that. And it would have had huge ramifications had he just said, yeah, we're going to surrender it, even though um, General Scott is saying you need to surrender it. Um, And I don't think he agreed with what he said at all. And Lincoln knew in his heart, I can't surrender the fort. Right, and I think this is an excellent example of how Lincoln's genius really lied in balancing the military and the political and the moral, because all of the military, anybody, you know, his military advisors who had any idea basically said, surrender it. Like, it is way too costly to reinforce it. It might be impossible to reinforce it from a purely military standpoint, surrender is the only option. And from a military standpoint, it never did get resupplied. Right. So in a way, and it probably would have been very hard to do it. Right. Even if, you know, let's say, I mean, they weren't going to let him do it, is basically what it came down to. Yeah, and I think that if it were a purely military decision, it was almost easy. Just surrender. It's The battle is lost. Your position is is unsustainable. You surrender. Well, he knew that because of the symbol that we talked about that it came to be in the north and his promise in his inaugural that that was not politically a wise thing to do. So now he has to decide between a near impossibility of reinforcing it, the political, what he viewed as would have been a political blunder of just simply surrendering it. So then you have to find something else. What else could there, and of course at the time really, I think it's, there wasn't a whole lot of advice to like, well, maybe there's a third option. Well, Lincoln kind of devises and then proposes a third option, which is to simply resupply it, and which would be, in a way, him saying like, we are we are bringing no weapons and we're trying to bring food to hungry people. Mm-hmm. Are you really going to attack a peaceful cargo ship? Essentially, um, and part of that plan was to be honest and transparent. With the governor of South Carolina, uh-huh. basically, which is also genius, because now you let that get out. Hey, I'm telling them we're sending supplies there to feed people who need food. Right there, winning the political game yet again. Right, right, exactly. And I think that that was a stroke of genius. And I think the cabinet was maybe taken a little bit back by two things. One, him saying like, I'm going to come up with some ideas too, and I'm going to ultimately make the decision. And then also, this is not a this is not really an idea proposed by a whole lot of people. Um, so, you know, they I think they were really looking at it from a military standpoint, um, because the po- the political side of things really wasn't a huge consideration. I don't think a lot of the time, um, that's something that Lincoln, I think was really a trailblazer with, um, with his presidency. Um, so the decision, and, and I think I always see a lot of similarities between the tension here because we're really at the brink of civil war. I mean, can you like to, to put it because you still had many people that thought there was not going to be a war or it might not be very big. Like these decisions in hindsight don't seem to be that big, but really you have a country on the brink of civil war. You know, think about how right now 
we're as Americans at least and probably worldwide I'm sure too and Canadians well yeah I mean with our presidents oh I thought you were talking about you're talking about that aren't you no uh, yeah, well he's not mine but I should um, listen better. the current president of the United States makes threats about fire and fury like the world has never seen and we're we're freaking out like this is potentially a war and it's got a very I believe a very slim chance of getting there well Lincoln at Fort Sumter is very much more on the precipice of war and his decisions and comments and policies could push us there so I you know I wonder what you know what does that feel like what is that like to be in that room for those decisions and what's going through Lincoln's head yeah, it would it must have been pretty tense for him, I think. But I think he also knew the right people to talk to as well. Like he went to former Navy lieutenant, and I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Gustavus Vaza Fox. Sounds who, good to he, me. I like yeah, it. He, he was the one who advocated for a plan to reinforce and supply and resupply Sumter from the sea. And he had advocated for that plan under the Buchanan administration, but obviously it fell on deaf ears. Um, and Montgomery Blair of Lincoln's cabinet, he was the one who endorsed it. He said, this is, sounds like a good idea to me. And that's when Lincoln began to give, he began to give it serious consideration that this possibly could be done. But I think that's what Lincoln wanted to hear was that there was a chance of resupplying and reinforcing the fort because by that point he knew that surrendering was not a possibility. Well, I agree with you hundred percent. And I, I think once he heard that, he's like, I got it. I got, I would like to think that's what he was thinking. I got my, yeah. I, I got my way out. Yeah. And then, and you're right about Blair. I mean, Blair's the only one who at first is supporting this unconditional resupply. I mean, he was the only one really backing it, you know, a hundred percent. And, it's it, to this it's just all amazing i mean pretty much lincoln took this terrible situation and he was able to spin it to where it was either heads he wins tails they lose mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. he spun it to where he was going to get the better of it no matter how it played out right and it and it turns out um obviously they lose the fort but because he was able to politically maneuver in, in the way that he did, it becomes a rallying cry. It, you know, the we, we can truly now say that the rebels are rebels because they've actually now rebelled as opposed to defended against this behemoth yeah. that is the industrial north. I don't think the South felt like they lost, though, either with it. I think, I mean, it becomes both um, Anderson and Beauregard become national heroes for this event. It's kind of like. You know, you talk about baseball all the time. It's one of those trades that both teams won. I, I think in a way, it kind of was a rallying cry for the South as well as the North. Yeah. I think the North needed it more than the South at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Nick. The North definitely needed it uh, way more than the South. And that's why Sumter, I think, even in Lincoln's mind, had become, I think he was probably thinking, Sumter is the symbol for morale. And if we lose this fort by simply surrendering it, it could have, you know, like, as I said before, huge ramifications. Um, so he knew he had to hold it and he had to go and they went down, I mean, they went down fighting. Right. And when you look at the, obviously morale is an extremely important piece of war. The main source of morale was union and patriotism as far, not, not necessarily for, from a freedom standpoint, but, a 
you know, they can, they cannot leave this union. It's it's for union, not for anything else. So for them to have fired the first shot, essentially attacking the union, attacking the United States, that's the rallying cry. And on the flip side, the rebels can now say that they are taking something that they're going to they're going to fight for what they want, and that becomes theirs. So um, I do think that that part of that risk with allowing them to fire the first shot was that they kind of rallied around that rallied around the idea you know there's the and I, Ken Burns does such a great job with um, connecting the line with the beginning and the end with the guy that the the person that probably apocryphally but um, it was credited with firing the first shot um, when Lee surrendered at the end ended up committing suicide because he couldn't exist under the flag again or whatever um, you know, so he becomes this like, you know, some sort of folk hero for the cause, um, which is kind of similar to what we were talking about at the top of the show. Um, but you know, they rally around that idea that they've attacked and they they're fighting now for what they believed were their rights or their state's rights or however you want to term it. Agreed. <laughs> totally agree too. Yep. So um, you said it so well. There was nothing yeah, to yeah, even rebuttal with. And that's coming from you, from you, Nick, who loves to complain. And one other real quick point I wanted to talk about with Montgomery Blair, because I think him, his and Lincoln's relationship is interesting. They're the Blair family. He doesn't last that long in the cabinet. So, like, the one person on the cabinet who ended up endorsing Lincoln's ultimate plan, um, it's not like Lincoln's like, all right, this is now my guy. I know he's going to, you know, he supports mm-hmm. me when I make decisions. No, <laughs> the, you know the, the the his relationship with the Blairs, I think, was always strained, at least to a certain degree. Um, yes, and he had to play it politically quite a lot. Um, but you know, Montgomery's ultimate exit from the cabinet is interesting. That you know, he's not looking for people to agree with him. He's not looking. You know, the fact that Blair did was good, and um, certainly showed that he'll handle divisiveness in his cabinet most of the time, encourage it. Um, but it, you know, you endorsing. One of the president's policies does not put you in any better favor than disagreeing with it. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing, too, kind of speaking of cabinet, although he wasn't in the cabinets, uh, Winfield Scott, I mean, he pretty much puts together an order to evacuate Fort Sumner. And Lincoln finds out about this, and this pretty much just pisses him off. And it's actually this action that kind of flips some of the cabinet to side with Lincoln, too, at this, too. So I, I just kind of found that, you know, a little bit fascinating as well. Kind of another example there to see, you know, who's pulling the strings here, um, you know, kind of testing Lincoln and, you know, Lincoln coming up and answering again. Right. Um, you know, I'm the guy who's running the show here. Um, so I, I found that kind of interesting after reading about um, looking into this a little bit more in detail. Yeah. I think one other piece that gets misunderstood often with Fort Sumter in the beginning of the war um, and, and just you talking about uh, Winfield Scott kind of remind me of it. Like, I think there's a lot of people who have the idea, like, why didn't they just roll over the South right at the beginning? Because they're, the South was disorganized. They didn't have a government. They were meet, you know, their, their capital was in Montgomery, which is like, you know, a thousand miles away before they moved it to Richmond. And they had no semblance of a military. Why didn't they just steamroll them? Well, the North wasn't exactly prepared for a war either. You got Winfield no. Scott, who's at the head of it, can't even get on a horse. You know, he's he's old. He's not in fighting shape by any stretch. Like, they didn't have a military set up really either. Like, they were very dated with their equipment. Um, 
they were well stocked with generals at West Point that all came from the south. <laughs> so yep. they well, shit, the guy Lincoln, the guy Lincoln chose, he wasn't going to move anyways. McClellan. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs> we were going anywhere quick anyway. Well, I guess it wasn't McClellan at that time. Right. But. It was McDo- yeah McDowell, but McDowell, still. McDowell yeah. also did not want to move anywhere though. Yeah. Right. So. It, yeah, and it was then it's yeah, McClellan. Right, but. Like the and I think that that oftentimes is like if Lincoln would just was decisive with Sumter immediately said, you know even if he surrendered it but saying like all right now it's the game is on and then just tried to try to roll over him it really just wasn't possible it's not it's not that easy. Well, the funny part is Lincoln yeah. was the aggressive one. He's the one telling McDowell, you know, you're green, they're green, you know, make the move, and he's the aggressive one for the Union as far as making movements and trying mm-hmm. to be decisive. At the beginning, and it's his generals that are really reluctant. Yeah, well, I think too, um, and I might have brought this up on when I was on the show before, but the polit, like you know, Washington didn't really have an idea of what was going on in the South, and when, um, and of course, I'm going to bring up my favorite general here, <laughs> Sherman. Uh, when his brother John took him to meet Lincoln, Lincoln asked him, like, "How's it going down south?" Because Sherman was just coming up from Louisiana, and. Sherman says to Lincoln, well, they're getting along swimmingly. They're preparing for war. And Lincoln casually says, oh, we'll hold our own. You know, like, and Sherman, that comment really bothered him. And he said to John after, don't you know what's going to happen? That there's going to be a war. And it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and it's going to be long and drawn out. And like, you know, even Lincoln at that point when that happened, he was very casual about it and whether he was just hiding how he really felt like i'm not too sure but you know there was kind of this thing going on where maybe washington didn't really understand fully what was going on down south right i mean they and that's and i think that that's one advantage that the south may have had at the onset is they 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 knew very well what was going on with the military because they were part of it uh but there was no there's no presence on his cabinet or really anywhere from people from the confederacy because they Mm -hmm. had all (laughs) <laughs> they had all left, um, and and yeah, and it to me it's interesting that there was at the onset of the war really a debate over whether this was actually going to result in war, if secession was actually going to lead to a civil war, or if it you know perhaps wasn't, and you know when it was like clearly after looking at how the the cost in human life and in other ways of the four years that was the war, like how was that possibly going to be avoided? Um, certainly by Lincoln or Buchanan or anybody else. So any other thoughts on Fort Sumter uh, before we move on to a couple other quick things? Uh, I think real quick, you know, um, basically they bombard it for 34 hours and nobody dies within the bombardment, which is also kind of, you, when you think about the civil war, the most costly war in American history and the first battle, there's like one casualty, one death, I think at the end. No, it was a Confederate horse. Yeah, okay. That was the only casualty, so, right? Yeah, there was one casualty. I think it was something to do, like, some gunpowder exploding. Yeah, with, like, the flag him. being taken. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, which is kind of ironic. I don't know if that's the right word or not. I'm not a word. Right, like, the first battle of the bloodiest war in American history was had no casualties. and Yeah, so. And it was kind of a foregone conclusion. Like, this is going to end up with a surrender of the fort. Like, there's, mm-hmm. there's no way to break through this siege um but yeah make it you know and it, you know kind of the strategy as well let's make them use up as much of their cannon shells as we can before we surrender and that, yeah that's what they do so and then i mean 
there's so many interesting figures in all these battles that take place. I mean, we could spend hours just talk about some of the figures and the people and the personalities that were there, you know, um, from, uh, you know, somebody who had the opportunity to do the first shot who didn't want to, to the guy who actually did and how, you know, that played out to, you know, the, you know, not the creator of baseball, but, you yep. know, supposedly the creator of baseball, <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, it's kind of a fascinating when you look at the characters. I think that's every battle in the Civil War, though. So maybe yeah, the people yeah, at Fort Sumter should invite us out. We'll do a podcast yeah. from there, and they can give us, <laughs> you know, the lowdown and all that. Yeah, I, you know, they, I would love to. It's beautiful down there from what I've heard. Um, we need to talk to Ranger Rosie. Yeah, that's right. Ranger Rosie, yeah, if you got any hookups, I'm sure. Is Fort Sumter a national park? Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe they got a ranger down there that can hook us up. Uh, one real quick thing I wanted to just talk about that I, um, I was thinking about as I was doing my research for the Open, um, and our open was about uh, the HBO show Confederate. Um, one of the writers who I've been really into lately, um, Tahanazi Coates. Um, I don't know if you've read him or not. He wrote Between the World and Me, which is a – if you have not read that, uh, I would recommend that very, very highly. It's an outstanding read, and you can read it in about certainly a day. It's very quick. Uh, but he wrote a piece on Confederate, uh, the, the HBO show, and he talked about their use of the word South. What if the South had one? And he made a very good point that – um, 40%, fully 40% of the South, of the humans living in the South, were not Confederates. Um, they were very much against uh, secession. They were very much against the war. I mean, it's because they were slaves. Um, so to say the South, and I think I'm, I, I will fully admit I'm very guilty of this, where I lump the South together when we're talking mm -hmm. about the Confederacy and Confederates. Um, so I thought that I just thought that was an interesting way to, to put it where you um, – the, the secession wasn't the South. It was the power structure in the South and those who believed in it. And I think that's where we're still seeing some elements of the war continuing on with and things, uh, you know, with the situation in Virginia. The power mm -hmm. structure and white nationalism and white supremacy were the driving forces, not this pride of geographic location. Um, so we're certainly conditioned to call it North versus South as opposed to Union versus Confederacy. Uh, but I thought that um, Ta-Nazi Coates made a, made a great point with that. Yes, I agree. I'm like leaving it yeah, out there. I like, agree. You guys like yeah. roll with it. Roll with it. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to add about Sumter. The thing that I find fascinating about it and most interesting is that it became just, I think to Lincoln, such a huge symbol of Northern morale um, or Union morale, I guess I should say. And just how his first inaugural ties into that, how he stood behind what he said in his first inaugural that he would not, the North or the Union would not be the first to, sh to shed the blood, but that they were going to hold their forts and stand by them and occupy them. And they did that with Sumter. And that's one of the things I find most fascinating. And I think it's him finding his footing as the president. Um, he's coming into you know, something that he doesn't know anything about. And it's showing how it's foreshadowing the great man he would become in later years, I think. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. It's his first great political move of many mm. that takes place over the next, what, four or five years. Right. And and one and I, I think that's a great point, Mary. And and sorry that I had to like branch off on what I've been reading lately. But um, before it's we okay. read with Sumter, but what what I think that that's a great point, especially when you consider they were talking days after he took office. You can go yeah. through even even the most highly rated presidents. 
they they bumbled for a while. Like they didn't really realize even those that were, those who had been vice president. Like you know, Kennedy completely screws up the Bay of Pigs. Like you, you know, there's a lot of legislative issues with that. You know, President Obama was successful with the stimulus package, but there were still some things that he tripped up on. Um, it's it's a job like no other. The fact that Lincoln, with his background, with his experience, with his sphere of influence, with what other people thought of him, kind of thinking that he was kind of this bumbling Western frontier, you know, um, figure, that he was able to occupy that office and immediately take it with confidence, power, um, smarts, all of that stuff, and make such a high-stakes decision while in the middle of handling patronage requests and handling filling mm-hmm. roles in all levels of the federal government and, you know, dealing with interpersonal issues, with you know, dealing with issues at home and everything else that we all deal with. You know, like, to me, that's the most fascinating thing, that, that this decision came to him so early in his presidency and he handled it so expertly. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the poor decisions he made obviously came too, but, like, that he handled the presidency so well, so early, to me, is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, he inherited, what, easily top three worst scenarios any president's ever inherited? I would say top <laughs> Maybe, top if not one. the I mean, you could maybe make the argument for Washington just because he had to start the nation. Yeah. I think FDR, the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I mean... Nobody else is really an argument, are they, for inheriting the mess? Not like not to this degree. Yeah. I think yeah. So. Not, I mean, not I like no, like we're, like first worst week on the job. Like is <laughs> yeah, it like yeah. he comes in after his inauguration? It's like there's this letter saying you got six weeks to resupply me, <laughs> or else it's I'm going down kind of thing. Um, and I've always said too, like just kind of off topic but george meade had probably like general meade had probably the worst first day on the job when he's given like you're commanding the army of the potomac oh here's gettysburg kind yeah. of thing like <laughs> by the yeah welcome generally is invading pennsylvania yeah, yeah. Like, wait yeah he hasn't lost in like you know two years yeah, he's going to attack you from the north like what wait what so um but yeah and that's i think that that's and that's why I really wanted to have an episode on Fort Sumter because I think as far as battles go, it reveals more about Lincoln than any other figure mm-hmm. in the Civil War. Um, and there were so many political angles to it as well uh, that that I um, think that that's really, really cool. I'm glad we, we took the time. So what now do we have any – before I go off on one of my many tangents that I apparently want to do all of a sudden, parting, parting shots on uh, – Fort Sumter, are you going to wave the white Fort, flag Fort on this Sumner? one? Yeah, yeah. We're going to so. wave the white flag. I mean, there's it's a lot good. more to it. It's very interesting. Like yep. um, we've been talking about, we, we just barely touched the surface with mm-hmm. it. So I personally would love to do another episode of this at Fort Sumter. So if you're <laughs> listening, um, you know, uh, yay, we'll come out there. <laughs> yeah, and I will drive all the way from Canada for there it. There you go. See? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and that we, we got I'm... like a solid 80 listeners, I think, so. Um, so, uh, of course, we cannot leave our faithful listeners without taking some time to do a This Week in Lincoln. Uh, this week, we're going to take a look at something several several of our little you know, Civil War community of, of tweeters mentioned the robo-Lincoln. Did you guys see this? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> kind of creepy. Like, okay, so we're Lincoln enthusiasts, right? So... Always, not always, often I daydream, like, what would it be like to meet Abraham Lincoln? What what would it be like to be able to talk to him? 
And uh, someone came up with what they're calling the most realistic robo-Lincoln yet. And I'm like, oh, wow, like maybe you could have a, some sort of experience. And then you look at it, and it is the creepiest, <laughs> scary, like this, it is the stuff of nightmares. Why is he like that's tweaking I, out like crazy? That's what I thought, too. I was like, that's really creepy. Like, it's like I'm, I'm not like afraid of dolls, but like I know there, I know that's like a common fear. Like I could see someone with that fear, like really freaking out. Like it's it, this robot's eyes. Like it's supposed to be like this cutting edge robotics because he's got facial expressions and his eyes move, and he's supposed to be emotive in a way. But it it's creepy. It's so, really really scary. The video out there is like it's like he's tweaking, like like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I'd rather see the Lincoln at the Hall of Presidents at Magic Kingdom. <laughs> Are yeah. they having him tweak out like that to like show like his facial? Look at the range movements? of like, facial look, expressions. Yeah. I don't know, but it's it's creepy. The only other Robo Lincoln I've seen, there's a sporting goods. Shields is like a like a Midwest Southern Midwestern sporting goods store, and they have like statues of presidents all over. Weirdly, but the Lincoln in Springfield is like a a robot so like he moves and his mouth moves right and now like, jeremy's doing a terrible robot movement just for <laughs> it's actually really accurate this is it's exactly it's exactly what uh he looks like in springfield so i know it looks stupid but that's that's the point i'm trying to make um but it, so i thought it'd be cool i took my kids there i'm like oh you can see it's an abraham lincoln and it moves and, it, and its mouth moves when it talks scared the crap out. they were absolutely <laughs> like i almost ruined their them following in my footsteps of being a Lincoln. Fan. They'll probably hate Lincoln for their whole life. First of all, because you're already like bringing it up. Right. They're like, how old are they? When they get to their angsty teenage years, yeah. they're gonna, they're gonna. I'm gonna make them do something. I'm like, they're you know what? That. Gonna Lincoln's gonna not that. the greatest president ever. And then I'm like, yeah, take the car keys away. <laughs> you're grounded. My kids are absolutely beautiful souls, and they would never mouth off to me ever, <laughs> even when they become teenagers. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, anyway, we'll tweet out some pictures of Robo Lincoln. Hopefully, we will not creep you out too badly. Uh, fair warning, if you do have uh, whatever the fear of dolls or um, fake humans is, be, you, you are consider yourself warned, Robo Lincoln is creepy. It is. It's very, it's very creepy. <laughs> so, um, please check us out on Twitter. We are at RailsplitterPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us anytime at derailsplitterpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'll read it on air if you email us. We will read it on air. Uh, we're also always, well, always, always, well, always, always. That's not 100% true. Like, if you're dropping F-bombs. Oh, you know what me, we need to do? I would personally like to read I don't think Jeremy will go. No, we that. absolutely need to do this. We are always, always, always appreciative of uh, iTunes reviews, and we are a little bit behind on reading them. So I would like to uh, read one of the iTunes reviews. Yes, right now. As soon as you get off of this, rate us on iTunes. Uh, we had a rating, um, which was a very, very generous five-star uh, review. Um, and rating, we are a five-star podcast, right? Uh, which I really appreciate. And this is from, and by the way, this is a very good Twitter follow to Boothy Barn. Uh, Mary, I believe you follow him too, right? Yes, I, yeah, I know him quite well. Yeah, he's I cool also guy. do. Yes, yep. yeah, cool it's, a, it's a highly, highly recommended Twitter mm -hmm. follow. Uh, I know he's presented at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Um, he's a scholar on uh, the Booth family, I believe. It's certainly John Wilkes Booth. Mm -hmm. So really, really cool uh, person in the Lincoln Online community. And he was kind enough to leave us a review. And uh, like other podcasts I follow, we will read any review, whether it's one stars or five. 
Uh, Boothy Barnes says, fun to listen to with wonderful insights. I stumbled across the Rail Splitter podcast through Twitter and have enjoyed Jeremy and Nick's and now Mary's forays into Lincoln land. The hosts are insightful while also making the subject matter fun. As a teacher myself, it's clear that these two have a passion for the topic of Lincoln and know how to share that with others. Looking forward to their continued adventures. I love that he called them adventures too, because that's like our the funnest, funnest, the most fun part of the show. So thank you, Boothy Barn. Thank you for listening. I'm just um, happy he called me insightful. He did. I, yeah, it's right here. That was an awesome review. review. Yeah. So thank you. We're not doing that to kind of toot our, toot our own horns. Uh, cause I we, am. We will read them all. Uh, <laughs> we are doing it shamelessly to encourage you to to review us. So. Um, and you can give yourself any name when you review, so you can make it funny, and we won't identify you or give out your Twitter handle like we just did for Boothy Barn. But you mean uh, I could rate it and just rip you? And then... You absolutely could. Oh, you could say how, how amazing Nick and Mary are and how terrible <laughs> I am. So, anyway, please give us a review on Twitter. Follow us at Real Splitter Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us at derailsplitterpodcast.com. Mary's blog is Civil War Fangirl, and your handle, Mary, is at miss underscore bellatrix so that's also a great twitter follow and we're trying to build a community we also now have a facebook group out that we're trying to get oh, off the ground you, you so posted anything in that thing? uh i post every episode in there we're trying to get some comments going back and forth on that um we had a little fledgling uh, uh, uh feed or stream or whatever of people putting lincoln tattoos up which was me and another guy but and his was <laughs> it was awesome by the way his was really good um so anyway you can check that out um and uh mary just posted a very interesting article on there about a steampunk lincoln which i thought yes. was super cool yeah um except it's not there anymore i know that's <laughs> I, I like i'm like oh it's not there and i want to go see it <laughs> yeah because that's not far from where we live i actually had some friends from college uh that lived in lockport illinois oh, okay they had a steampunk lincoln and it was like really well done so mary mm-hmm. thanks for posting that uh, oh, you're in the facebook group uh, but that kind of thing, that's what we're talking about with building a Lincoln community, like to share that. Um, because I have very few, I have, I have the best friends in the world, but very few of them could I be like, hey, you guys want to check out this steampunk Lincoln in Lockport? <laughs> um, so, and those friends of ours that are listening, you are included. I would have shared that with you for sure. Um, so anyway, please check us out on social media. Um, any parting thoughts, Mary, Nick? Yeah, I got one parting thought. Um, we were supposed to film this episode last week, but uh, I had to cancel uh, my grandma was really sick and uh, she passed away. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up, though, is because uh, uh, this podcast, one of the few things I was able to do with her um, before she passed away is kind of talk about the podcast. And one of the things I found out that my grandma's first love was Lincoln. Wow. So that's actually what she told me. So, um, you know, obviously, I don't think she knew him, but um, <laughs> she, she was old, but not that old. <laughs> But uh, no, um, so, and then uh, my brother told me he kind of played one of the episodes for her and, and kind of brought a smile to her face in one of her last few days. Aww. So, um, you know, doing this podcast has been a blast and it's been fun. And then just kind of giving my grandma a shout out because I'm sure her and Lincoln are listening to it right now. So yeah, um, just awesome. wanted to do that for her. So, yeah, and I, you know, I've offered my condolences already, but I'd like to do Aww. that again on the show. Um, I didn't get a chance to meet Nick's grandmother, but I can say that, um, I have spent a lot of time with Nick's family, and they're amazing people. So, you know, we are the legacy we leave behind, I think, and the fact that she's left a, an amazing family is is testament to her. So condolences, Nick. Thank um, you. Hopefully her and Abraham Lincoln are listening to this and enjoying it. Yes, I'm sure they are. Yeah, yeah condolences, Nick. And um, it just reminded me uh, my grandma was into Lincoln as well, and 
she would always listen to me talk about him. And she was with me at the Henry Ford Museum when I saw the chair that he was assassinated in. And she stood next to me for 15 minutes while I stared at it. And she just would sit th- stand there and listen to me talk about him. So I totally get what you're saying yep. about that. Um, thank you again for having me back on the show. This has been awesome. Hope I can come back again sometime. It's a oh, lot yeah. of fun. And I love discussing Fort Sumter. That was really awesome. So right. Thank I, you. I enjoyed it too. And Mary, obviously you're always uh, welcome back. The third rail splitter, as we like to call you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> and just for the record, I finished a Canadian Civil War book. So I stuck through it all Yay! the way through. I know about uh, John McDonald. Am I right on it? Yes. Yeah. yeah our yeah. first prime minister. Yep. He knew how to throw back, throw back a couple. I'll tell you that oh, much. He'd, oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, that's, yeah, we're good at that in Canada. Can we have your current prime minister? <laughs> yeah. Just for like the next. Well, he's so dreamy, first of all. Um, Anyway, thank you, uh, Mary. Thank you, Nick. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I, you know, I always leave these waiting, wanting more and looking forward to next week. So thank you to the listeners for tuning in and hopefully you learned a little bit about Fort Sumter. And if you, if you did and had some thoughts, definitely shoot them at us on social media. So um, we are looking forward to our next show and just keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you next week.